The God's Peculiar People podcast presents a recording of the life of D.L. Moody by his son, William R. Moody. The Life of D.L. Moody, Chapter 47, Memorial Services Mr. Moody's departure from this earthly life brought expressions of personal sorrow from all parts of the world. For days and weeks, telegrams, cables, letters, and copies of resolutions from Christian organizations were received from every part of America and from distant lands, all united without regard for any social distinction in testifying to their love and admiration for this humble servant of God. In many of the leading cities in America and Great Britain, memorial services were held in which his former associates spoke of the result of the missions that he had conducted. In New York City, two large meetings were held, while Brooklyn, Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, and San Francisco showed their appreciation of his lifelong devotion to the cause of the Church by gatherings representing all denominations. Then came the news of similar gatherings in London, one at Exeter Hall, another at St. James Hall, others were held in Liverpool, Edinburgh, and Glasgow. And after these came the echoes of meetings in Japan and other foreign lands. Perhaps nothing so displayed the Catholic nature of Mr. Moody's work as these assemblages. At the services in London, tributes were paid to his memory by the Reverends F. B. Mayer, Guinness Rogers, Monroe Gibson, Hugh Price Hughes, H. W. Webb Piplow, and by Lord Kennard. In America, equally representative speakers took part. In Boston, Tremont Temple was filled. Clergymen of all denominations crowded the platform, and when the choir that had so often assisted Mr. Moody in his meetings in the hall sang, I had not seen, it did not require much imagination to think of it as one of Mr. Moody's meetings of former years. H.M. Moore, for thirty years one of Mr. Moody's most intimate friends and most valued helpers, presided, and addresses were made by Bishop F. W. Melalau and Reverends Drs. L. B. Bates, A. H. Plum, George Lormeyer, H. I. White, and John Willis Bear. Dr. Joseph Cook addressed another memorial meeting in Park Street Church, Boston, about the same time, and spoke with his old-time force. In Brooklyn, where Mr. Moody had preached just before going to Kansas City, other services were held in which Drs. J. F. Carson, Theodore Kyler, David Gregg, A. C. Dixon, A. T. Pearson, and Mrs. Edgar W. Hawley and Ira Sankey were among the speakers. On the evening of the Davis death at the Plymouth Church prayer meeting, the pastor, Dr. N. D. Hillis, and the former pastor, Dr. Lyman Abbott, reviewed his life work. On the following Sunday, Dr. Hillis delivered a sermon in which he spoke of him as the last of the great group, Spurgeon, Brooks, Beecher, and Moody. Of the memorial services held at colleges and university, the one at Yale University, at which Professor George P. Fisher of the Yale Divinity School, several local clergymen, and Mr. Ira D. Sankey took part, was of special interest. In New York City, one of the meetings was presided over by Mr. William E. Dodge. In speaking of his friend, whom he had known and loved for forty years, Mr. Dodge said, In the whole history of the Church of Christ, very few have touched so many hearts and influenced so many lives as this dear friend whom we come to thank God for today. I am sure it is not exaggeration to say that if all those whom he had led to a better life would be gathered together, a half-dozen halls of this size would not hold them. We are now met to thank God with all of our hearts for his glorious and fruitful life, and to pray that that influence may be continued. He is not dead. He has gone to the better life above. He lives with us today, and will live on by his example and by the inspiration that comes from his words and life. When Mr. Moody became a Christian, it was like the conversion of St. Paul, clear, decided, and for all his life. From the beginning, his theology was very simple. His creed was, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This message he delivered with all his courage and manliness and strength through all his life, 
and so earnestly it told wherever he carried it. Mr. Moody's early work, too, was very simple. I remember, more than forty years ago, going with him one Sunday morning to that poor little school there in Chicago. I then got sight of the peculiarity of the man, his directness, his simplicity, his kindliness, his humor, and the manliness of his character that won those children and won their parents. There were two early life influences that directly affected his life more than any others. One was the companionship and help that came to him from the Brotherhood of the Young Men's Christian Association. All his life he acknowledged that as having formed part of his character, and all through his life he was the warm friend of those associations, helping and aiding them in every possible way. But a stronger and a greater influence was his beginning in the study of the English Bible. He devoted himself to an intense study of it, and from it got two things. In the first place he gained that clear-cut, plain, simple Anglo-Saxon of the King James Version that gave him such an eminent power over people everywhere. In the second he gained an arsenal and armament of praise and warning, which he used through all of his life with such magnificent power. There was something wonderful about his simple directness. I would, could give by the hour instances of the clear way in which he went directly to the point. When I first met him in Chicago, while he was very little known, he went to call on a leading merchant, and one of the most influential men in that city. And as he went out, he turned and said, If you were only a Christian man, what influence you could have in this growing city. That man had been a communicant of a church for years, and it had never been known. It was the turning point in his life, and he was Moody's best friend and helper for many years. There was a manliness about him, an earnestness, a hatred of cant, but mere religious form. He had the most intense and superb enthusiasm of any man I ever knew, but it was tempered by a strong, clear common sense. And then he had, in addition to that, a wonderful, intuitive knowledge of men. We know very much of his wonderful success as a preacher, but those who knew him best and were nearest to him know that the great power of his life was in his personal conversation with men. The greatest sermon I ever heard from Mr. Moody, far away the strongest, was one night on Madison Avenue, at half-past twelve, coming up from one of the great meetings at Madison Square. Three or four of us were together. We had been kept at the hall by those who insist upon talking and getting advice and help from Mr. Moody, and he was tired by a long day's work. Suddenly a gentleman came up from behind and said, Mr. Moody, how shall I accept Christ and change my life? He turned, and standing there in the moonlight on the corner of the street, in a few short, cleanly cut, kindly, earnest words, put the whole truth so clearly to the man that there was no getting away from it, and he became a changed man from that day. I was privileged to be with him at the wonderful series of meetings in the Haymarket Theatre, London, most wonderful meetings that I have ever known. And what struck me and surprised me was the number of educated and cultivated people who came there. There was a large number of literary men, who did not at all believe in religion, who came for the very purpose of hearing his simple, clear-cut English phraseology, which is so little used nowadays. His work in the universities was simply wonderful. When he went to Oxford and Cambridge, they determined to run him out of town. They did not want that kind of talk there, but his manliness and straightforwardness and courage conquered them, and the number of young men whose lives were changed, and who are now a power for good all over the world, wherever England has a place, would astonish us. The schools he established, after all this great work, are models of organization and executive ability. I hope with all my heart that they will be carried on as a memorial. What touched me more than anything else in Mr. Moody was his extreme modesty about himself. He was the most masterly man I ever knew. He would direct and control and suggest to others like a general. We all know how that showed at his great gatherings. But when it came to himself, he was the most modest of men. I was privileged to be in the house with him during all the time of these great meetings at Madison Square. I never heard him speak of himself. You would not know he had anything to do with these great gatherings. On one occasion he said to his friends, My only wonder is that God can use such an instrument as I am to do such work. 
Dr. Theodore L. Kyler, paid a notable tribute to this meeting in which he said, The most extraordinary gospel preacher that America has produced in this century has gone up to his resplendent crown. More than to any other man was the privilege accorded to Brother Moody of having poured the gospel of redeeming love into more human ears and more human hearts than any man in modern times. Spurgeon, in his peerless way, preached one day in the week. Moody preached six days, and in one week reached forty to fifty thousand souls. Our dear brother was more endeared to us because he was such a thoroughly typical American. He tasted of the soil, and all in his garments was the smell of the New England fields that the Lord had blessed. If I was called upon to name the two most thoroughly typical Americans of the nineteenth century, men who have found their way from obscurity to white influence, the men who are American boys should have taught to study as the model of patriot and the preacher of righteousness, I should not hesitate to name Abraham Lincoln and Dwight L. Moody. When the nation's life was to be preserved and its liberty secured, Almighty God called a poor boy from the log cabin in Kentucky, cradled him on the rocks of hardship, gave him the great west for his university, and then anointed him to be our Moses, to lead us through a sea of blood to a Canaan of freedom. In like manner, Almighty God called the farmer boy on the banks of the Connecticut, gave him for his education only one book, filled him with the spirit of Christ Jesus, then sent him out as a herald of salvation until Great Britain hung on his lips. Lincoln and Moody possessed alike the gift of an infallible common sense. Neither of them ever committed a serious mistake. They were alike in being the masters of the simple, strong Saxon speech, the language of the people, and of Bunyan the language that is equal to the loftiest forensic or pulpit eloquence. Lincoln's huge, loving heart gushed out in sympathy for all sorts and conditions of men, and made him the best-loved man in America's history. And Moody's big, loving heart, fired with the love of Jesus, made him a master of pathos that touched the fount of tears in thousands of hearts, and often brought weeping multitudes before his pulpit. Finally, Lincoln, the liberator, went up to his martyr crown, carrying four millions of shattered manacles in his hands. Moody, the liberator of immortal souls from the fetters of sin, fell the other day, a martyr to overwhelming work, and went up to be greeted at the gates of glory by thousands whom he had led from the cross to the crown. And now for a moment let me say, it may not be known to all of you, that on a Sabbath, shortly before our brother started for Kansas City, he delivered his last sermon in New York, in yonder Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. In that discourse I think the promontory shadow is already following. He uttered this wonderful sentence said he, You may read in the papers that Moody is dead. It will not be so. God has given me the gift of the life everlasting. I, I, thanks be to God, Moody is living. Moody lives. His spirit is in this hall today. Methinks I hear that trumpet voice calling on the pastors and churches of New York to seek through this week of prayer a baptism of fire that shall kindle the city and perhaps set the nation aflame. The Reverend David J. Burrell, pastor of the Marble Congregate Reformed Church, said, I met Mr. Moody when I was a theological student 32 years ago in Chicago. I was a boy rooming up above Old Farwell Hall, where Mr. Moody preached, and his apartments were just below mine. The old hall burned down. The fire caught in the early morning and slowly burned through the forenoon. We tried to remove our personal effects and to help out some sick folk. And at last I found my way into the street, coatless and hatless. The cordon was round about in front, and there was Mr. Moody. It was now near noon. He had under his arm a bundle of handbills, and he beckoned to me and said, Take these and distribute them in this great company. Help me out. I looked at the bill. Our beautiful house is burned up. The noonday meeting will be held, as usual, in the Clark Street Methodist Episcopal Church. We must get these out, he said. And, and where's your wife, and where's your little girl? I saw them safe. Where are your personal effects? Oh, never mind them. Our noonday meeting must go on. It was always thus. One thing I do. He has left that thought with me. We are talking about his memorial. I am going to build him a monument, please God, in my own ministerial life. 
I'm going to honor his memory by a more consuming earnestness in doing this one thing. The last address was delivered by the Reverend Dr. J. M. Buckley, who said, Our friend died when he was most desired, desired to maintain those wonderful Bible conferences, desired as a nucleus of undenominational activity, desired to sustain those educational institutions which he had founded, desired to raise up more workers filled with the Spirit, desired to go to and fro through the country to awaken communities, to snap the chains of conventionalism, to elicit and evoke the tremendous latent forces of the church and to unite Christians in the only way in which they can ever be united, by a firm and unswerving belief in the fundamental principles of the gospel and an active, soul-saving, consecrating labor. At this hour, a young D.L. Moody was called away. By nature, God endowed Mr. Moody physically in an astonishing manner. There was a man in Connecticut who adored Mr. Moody, and he invariably amused himself when sitting in the cars in this way. When Mr. Moody came in, he would say, Do you know him? This is Huntington, the greatest railroad man in this country. Never did he hear one word of question from men who had never seen Huntington. At other times, he would suggest he was a Western judge. In every case, every man seemed to think it exactly right. They saw that tremendous head, monster chest, prominent, intense, direct action, a man obviously born to command. This man inevitably told people afterwards before they left him, No, that's not Mr. Huntington. It is Mr. Moody. And their curiosity was greatly excited. Physically, many men remained of Mr. Moody, but D.O. Moody never remained men of another man, in the ordinary sense of the term, that indefinable personality that will not show in a photograph and cannot be painted in oil was Mr. Moody. He could improve, and that was one of his glories. Two hundred years from now, the higher critics will be trying to prove that there were two Moody's, and they will do it by getting up, word by word, and sentence by sentence, the language that Mr. Moody used when he began in Chicago. They will make a parallel of these with the highly improved style of his later years. Some persons say Mr. Moody was not a cultivated orator. Note that the passage quoted by Drummond. Observe that when in London he described the ascension of Elijah, several parliamentary orators rose to their feet and actually looked in the air after describing the prophet. Take his sublime eulogy of Joseph of Arimathea, delivered in this house less than a year ago. Not far from yonder box had a bishop noted for sound judgment, who said, That is a piece of work any man might be proud of. Nearly twenty-five years ago, the gentleman who presided today sat on the platform in the Hippodrome. At that time, New York beheld an emperor, an emperor of great territory, which is to be in the future one of the greatest empires of the world, unless it becomes permanently Republican. I refer to Don Pedro, the emperor of Brazil. He went on the platform and took the seat vacated by Mr. Dodge. Two-thirds of the audience knew who he was, but the man of the occasion was Mr. Moody, and he was preaching at the time. What did he do? Did he exhibit the fawning and obsequious bow that many persons made when the President appeared, or even the Secretary of State? Mr. Moody never referred to Don Pedro, but introduced in the midst of his discourse these words, What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? An emperor cannot buy heaven, but he can have it as a free gift. After he said that, he paused, and Don Pedro bowed his assent, and afterwards remarked to the gentleman who wrote the account, There is a man to be heard and believed. Mr. Moody had his prejudices, for once I heard him declare that he would own fellowship with everyone that believed him, be a sinner, and trusted in Christ. But he said, God be my helper. I will never own fellowship with a man who denies the deity of my God and Savior Jesus Christ, or sneers at his atonement. Moody was told that he must die. What then? Oh, the blessing to the church of the manner of his death. God showed, I believe, in a peculiar way for the church and for him, that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. There is something worse in this world than agnosticism something worse than blanket fidelity. It is the practical effects of a belief that we cannot be sure of the future. There were those in the time of Paul who said, Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
Ah, if there was no life afterwards, I too would drink anything that would make me oblivious to my doom. But listen. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Among those who spoke briefly of their friendship of Mr. Moody, or took part in the devotional services, were the reverends Drs. Arthur T. Pearson, John Balcom Shaw, Wilton Merle Smith, A.C. Dixon, and Mrs. R. Fulton Cutting, Ira Sankey, and John R. Mott. It was fitting that the seminary's special memorial for Mr. Moody should be at the first chapel service held after the funeral. On other opening days, he himself had been the welcome speaker, bringing some stirring message for the new term. This day, perhaps, the silence that replaced the living voice proved as powerful an appeal as had the actual words. Brief tributes were paid by the Reverends C.I. Schofield, John Willis Byer, and trustees of the school. The closing moments were spent in a consecration service led by Mr. Bear, who, after a warm personal tribute to Mr. Moody, invited the young women to enter into a covenant to live higher lives. Many rose in response to this appeal, and later fully twenty-five expressed, by rising, their desire to become Christians. It was keenly felt that Mr. Moody's interest was still with the work he had loved, and that his presence was not far away. At a later date, a meeting for personal testimony was held by the students. One who is closely associated with Mr. Moody in this work gave the following testimony. I should like to speak especially of the place that prayer had in his life. I have been looking through some of his letters lately, letters which I received from him during those years that I have been at Northfield, and there is scarcely one of them in which there is not a mention of prayer. Sometimes he wrote asking me to pray for the work in a certain city, that the ground might be ready for the seed. Again he would write that he was to speak upon the atonement or upon the Holy Spirit, and would ask me to pray that God would make it real to the people. Then there would come a letter saying that the work was deepening, that he believed it was the answer to prayer, and that he hoped to see the good work extended over the land from sea to sea. We all remember how he used to come up to the chapel the morning before he started on one of his evangelistic tours and ask us to pray for him. We saw then his humility, and how completely he depended upon God. God was very real to him. He talked with God, and so did not have to turn out of his way to speak to him. I have been driving with him on some retired road about Northfield. We would be talking together, when suddenly he would pause for a moment and speak to God just as naturally as he would speak to a friend. When we teachers had been invited to his house of an evening, we had begun by telling amusing stories. And as you know, no one enjoyed hearing or telling a good story more than Mr. Moody. The conversation might drift into a talk about the needs of the country town or the outlying districts of our own town, and our evening would end with prayer. Last summer during the August conference, I was at his house one afternoon, and he said to me, The sweetest thing has come to me today. I was feeling somewhat troubled this morning because the seminary accounts were behind, and we needed a good deal of money to pay up the bills. I didn't see how I could do anything about raising the money, now with the confidence upon my hands, so I just committed the matter to the Lord. This afternoon, while I was driving a lady over to Mount Hermon, she said to me, Mr. Moody, I have decided to give you $10,000 to use for your school, just as you like, and instead of waiting till some future time to give me the money, as I thought she might, she has already given me the check for the sum which is just what I had in mind is necessary to meet the present needs of the seminary. It brings the Lord so near. Certainly all of Mr. Moody's work was begun and continued and ended in prayer. And as I thought of his work, which he has left us to do, I realized how much we need to learn this lesson of prayer, and I pray that God may pour upon us the spirit of grace and of supplication. The keynote of the memorial service at Mount Hermon held at the new chapel was presented to the school on the 60th anniversary of Mr. Moody's birth by Christian friends of Great Britain and America, was the power of an endless life. In response to the invitation to let this power rule forever in their lives, nearly the whole school rose. This was but one instance of the work he directly accomplished after his death in the body. And who can doubt that, indirectly, that work has never stopped?
The Life of Diomudi, Chapter 48, Tributes from English Friends. Volumes, many and large, would be required to reproduce the tributes that had been received from sympathetic friends. Two only here are presented, and from these close associates of later years who were particularly near to Mr. Moody. By Reverend F. B. Mayer. D.L. Moody always reminded me of a mountain, whose abrupt bold front, scarred and furred with storm, forbids the tourist. Yet soft valleys nestle in its mighty embrace, and verdant pastures are watered by the waters that fur the summit. He was preeminently a strong man. His chosen friends were men. He was happiest when giving his famous address on sowing and reaping to an audience of men only. Strong natures were strongly influenced by him. If a number of his friends were together, their conversation would almost inevitably turn on Moody, and if he entered any group, he would at once become its center, to whom all thoughts and words would turn. All who knew him intimately gave him reverence as an uncrowned king, though his crown, like that of the Huns, was of iron. Nothing short of an indomitable resolution and willpower could have conducted the uncultured, uneducated lad from the old shanty in Chicago to the opera house in London, where royalty waited on his words, rugged, terse, full of mother wit, direct and sharp as a two-edged sword. For as the man was, so he spake, alone, except for the help of God, unlearned except for what he had gained from his incessant study of the scripture and ceaseless observation of character unassisted by those circumstances of a prepossessing appearance, musical speech, and college education, on which others have climbed to prominence and power, he made his way forward to the front rank of his time, and became one of the strongest religious factors of the world. The charm of his character was his thorough naturalness. Perhaps it was this that carried him so triumphantly through his career, that a matter had always to be dealt with in a certain way was no reason why he should follow the beaten track. On the contrary, it was as a reason for striking out in some novel and unconventional method. He was perfectly unmoved by the quotation of established precedent, utterly indifferent to the question as to whether the course he proposed would bring praise or blame. When he had mastered all the difficulties of a problem, he would set himself to its solution by, by the exercise of his own sanctified tact and common sense. There was no limit to his inventiveness, to his rapid appreciation of the difficulties of a situation, or to his naive solutions. I have often compared his method of handling the perplexity with his driving, for he always went straight before him over hedges and mounds, up hillsides, through streams, down dikes, over ploughed fields. The last day I was with him at Northfield, he drove me from the conference hall, of ground so irregular and uneven that every moment I expected we should be overturned. But we came out all right at the gate we wanted, and it was certainly the shortest cut. So it was with him. If he could not untie knots, he would cut them. At the same time, he was absolutely simple and humble. In all the numberless hours I have spent with him, he never once manifested the least sign of affectation, never drew attention to himself, never alluded to the vast numbers that attended his meetings, the distinguished persons who had confided their secrets to him, or the enterprises which had originated in his suggestion, or been cradled under his care. It seemed as though he never heard of Diamudi, and knew less of his doings than the ordinary reader of the daily press. Not unfrequently I said of myself, when in his country, Is this the man who can gather and hold ten thousand people by the month in any of the great cities of the world? There was an appearance of abruptness in his manner, which was undoubtedly assumed as a protection of a very tender and sensitive spirit, much as oysters will form for themselves strong shells against the fret of the waves and rocks. He had seen others carried away by the adulteration of their admirers, and weakened by the soft caress of the world. He knew that the personal element is apt to intrude between the speaker and the interest of those whom he would fain to save for Christ's sake. He was absolutely determined that people should not rest on him, but on the word of God, to which he was ever pointing them and he therefore encased himself in the hard shell of an apparently rugged and uncouth manner. It was only when the crowds had gone, and he was able to reveal himself without risk of being misunderstood, that he cast away his reserve and revealed his true and tender self. 
If it be asked what was the secret of the power, which in England and his own country would hold in rapt attention for months, ten or fifteen thousand people, the answer must certainly be found in the tenderness and compassion of his nature. That he could tell a good story, call forth ripples of laughter by the touch of quaint humor, narrate Bible stories as though he were personally acquainted with the actors, or had witnessed the occurrences in his travel, were as the small dust of the balance, compared to the pathos which trembled in his voice and moved vast audiences to tears. His power was that of the heart, rather than the head. Whilst he was speaking, his hand was on the pulse. He was counting heart-throbs, and touching those deep elemental emotions of the heart which cluster about mother, father, home bereavement, heaven. He was more thoughtful of others than any man I have ever known. How often have the meetings in Northfield been interrupted, because some sharply dressed person hadn't a seat? How many times all the comforts of his home have been freely offered to some sick or friendless student? Whatever trouble befell anyone in the town of Northfield seemed to be Mr. Moody's and his well-known buggy would be seen making his way to the home of bereavement or affliction with some kindly inquiry or alleviation. It was because of acts of this kind that when his mother died some five years ago, the Roman Catholic element in the community asked that one of their number might lead the horses that bore the beer, a request which, of course, was readily granted. The most pathetic revelation of D.L. Moody was made last August at Northfield, when all through the summer days his little, his little grandchild, whom he loved passionately, was dying. Again and again he asked me to beg the people not to express their sympathy when they met him, lest it should break him down altogether. And how the strong frame would shake with convulsive sobs, as we prayed that her life might be spared. God, however, knew better, and took the little one home that she might be there in time to greet the strong, true nature that loved her so sincerely, when in turn his servant was called to enter his reward. I never guessed the intensity of his tenderness till I saw him with his grandchildren. He used to drive them about in his carriage or carry them in his arms. One of the most striking incidents in my memory was when he stood with him beside his mother's grave in a summer sunset, and asked us to pray it might be in the coming century which she had been in this. And when little Irene was dying, he used to be on the watch below her window to keep all quiet, and would steal down from the meetings to hear the latest news, would be the nurse and playmate of her little cousin, that all might devote themselves to the chamber of sickness. So touched because a little child had sent the invalid a pet lamb. How moved he was as we saw together. He was a great Christian strategist, and never so happy as when organizing some great campaign, like that during the World's Fair in Chicago, when he occupied the largest halls in that city, with evangelists gathered from all parts of the world, or when, in later years, he promoted the distribution of Bibles and the holding of evangelistic meetings among the American soldiers in Cuba. He was the von Mulkey of the religious world in the United States. He would lay plans for a winter campaign in such cities as New York or Boston, would engage some large central buildings and hold two or three meetings a day, interesting reporters and gaining the attention of the press, working out presently into new quarters of the city until the whole community had felt the impact of the religious momentum communicated through him. Ministers would open their churches and respond to his appeals for help. Lists of converts would be furnished to the several churches, and the whole campaign would be so contrived as to increase the zeal and activity of the churches that had ranged themselves under his leadership. He was absolutely fearless. I remember one occasion when he felt it laid on his heart to speak some unpalatable truths to a number of ministers and others. Before me, as I write, is the large circle that sat around his spacious dining room in the summer evening, the monument of ice cream which he carved with such precision, and then the direct, unvarnished words which wounded deeply, that a better condition of a soul life might be induced. Whether in a crowd or with an individual, he never, to win a smile or avoid a frown, swerved a hair's breadth from what he thought right. As a conversationalist, he was charming. He would sit on the porch of his unpretending, comfortable house, overlooking the lovely landscape, telling story after story of marvelous conversions. One day, for instance, a gentleman drove up as we were talking, and he told me that he had won him to Christ 
when quite a lad by a conversation on the roof of a Chicago hotel, that being the only quiet spot he could find for his purpose. Or he would recall reminiscences of men whom he had known. He had a great fund of information about agriculture, had traveled widely and observed shrewdly, was in keen and close touch with the great religious movements of the time, and was specially fond of asking questions of anyone who seemed likely to communicate reliable information. His was a triumphant homegoing, and as the story of it has spread from land to land, it has stirred thousands of hearts to a deeper and more entire consecration to the service of Jesus Christ. His voice is hushed, his heart has ceased to beat, and he has left a great void behind him, but he has already entered on higher service, and in the foremost ranks of the sons of light, his strong and noble spirit is still about in the work of the Lord, where neither weariness nor pain can fetter or slacken its celestial ardor. I count it among the great privileges of my life to have known him so well by Rev. G. Campbell Morgan. My personal acquaintance with Dwight Lyman Moody was not of long duration, according to the measure of a calendar, he says. If we should count time by heartthrobs, then I may claim to have known him, for it has been one of the greatest privileges of my life to have come very near to him in the ripest years of his life. I first saw him in 1883, during his second visit to Birmingham. Bingley Hall was being crowded daily with eager crowds who had come by train from the surrounding district. Once only I spoke to him, the impression of those days, therefore, is that of a man in the midst of a rush of work. No detail of arrangement escaped his notice. A vacant seat, the opening closing of doors, a tendency to drag the singing, all these he noted and rectified. Yet he was by no means a man who cared for detail for detail's sake. The supreme passion of his life was the winning of men for Christ, and no detail was insignificant that would hinder or help. Two pictures of these old days were deeply engraved in the tablets of my memory. The first picture is that of Moody as a prophet, and the vast audience, numbering at least 20,000, were hushed, subdued, overawed, knowing the terror of the Lord he persuaded men. I dare affirm that thousands of people stood face to face that evening with the awfulness of their sin, startled and smitten. The other picture is that of Moody coming to the close of an address on the king's invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The graciousness of that invitation had possessed him that night with a new force. The deepest fountains of his nature were touched, and he stood before the great crowd, moved with his master's compassion pleading with tender urgency and fine pathos. A strong man moved to tears. Alas, he cried, let those who will accept the invitation say I will. And from every part of the hall, instantly, immediately, the cry of a multitude went up, I will. I did not see him again for thirteen years, but through them all, the force of his character had an influence on my life that I should find it hard to measure. In 1896, I visited the United States for the first time. The Northfield Conference was in session, and I managed to spend a few days there. Arriving late at night, I found my quarters and retired. The next day was a field day for me, as well as a revelation. Everywhere, Mr. Moody was the moving spirit. Bright and cheery, and yet in dead earnest, he seemed to make everything go before him. In the interval of the meeting, he gave me a drive round the campus in his buggy. Every point of interest was pointed out, and in a few brief words, the story of how the different buildings were erected was told. Passing a certain house, he said, "'People sometimes ask how I found Northfield. I tell them it found me. I was born there.' Suddenly, he pulled up his horse to speak to a group of children. "'Have you had any apples today?' he said. "'No, Mr. Moody,' they replied. "'Then go down to my house and tell them to give you all you want.' Away they went, and so did he, both happier. Down a narrow lane, he drove next, and through a gate to where a man was at work in a field. "'Big low, said Mr. Moody. "'It's too hot for you to work much. "'Have a day's work for a day's pay. "'You know, while the heat lasts.' I sat by his side and watched and began to understand the greatness of the man whose life was so broad that it touched sympathetically all other phases of life." After the evening meeting, as it is invitation, I gathered with the speakers at his house. Then, for the first time, I saw him in a new role, that of the host. He sat in his chair at the head of a table, and directed the conversation, and listened with the patience and simplicity of a child to every word the other spoke. That night the talk turned on the most serious subjects, 
the inner life of the people of God, and sparing all the work of the churches among the people. As we departed, I went to bid him good-bye, as I was to leave by an early train on the morrow. Oh, he said, I shall see you in the morning. You were to preach at ten o'clock. That was my first notice. What did I do? I preached as he bid me, as other and better men have ever been glad to do. That was his way. After speaking next morning, I hurried away. But in that brief stay, Moody had become more to me. Strong, tender, considerate. From that day, I more than revered him. I loved him. I look upon him as one of God's choicest gifts to the church and the world during this century now drawing to a close. His value will never be rightly appreciated here, where the view is partial and transient. Yonder in the perfect light we shall know. To some of us, heaven is more to be desired today for his presence there, and earth is more to be loved for the great love he lavished upon it. Oh, the gap! Yet he would not have us dwell upon his removal, but upon the abiding presence of the Lord he loved and served. He entered on the higher service. It is for those of us who remain to tighten the girdle, it is for those of us who remain to tighten the girdle and take hold afresh on the work of God's today. Presently we shall meet him again in the light of the glory of the Lamb, and then surely we will love him more than ever. The End To learn more about God's peculiar people, visit the links in the description.